The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. I'm going to be reading from Galatians 4, 1 through 7, and then verses 21 through 31. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So now verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem from above is free. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This ends the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. morning. Before we get started, uh, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this day, and we thank you for uh, this time that we have to come and to gather and to worship. worship you and worship with one another. Uh, just reminded as we, we sing our final song, Lord, that though our sins be many, Lord, your mercy is more. And I know that we each come in in, in different um, modes and different ways with a, a number of things that have happened throughout the week, Lord. And if it was by our strength that we had to hold up this worship service and make it something, uh, we would fail each and every week, Lord. But it is you and your spirit who upholds us. It is you who is easy to worship. It is you who... Uh, by your kindness, leads us into repentance. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come and we listen to your word, as we continue in this worship service, Lord, would you help us not to center ourselves, nor even the things that have happened this week, Lord, but bring all those things to the foot of your throne. Uh, Offer those things to you, Lord, and receive the freedom, uh, the peace, the grace, the love, and the instruction that you give. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, every time uh, I hear my introduction... Uh, it makes me think that I haven't really done anything cool in life since college, you know? <clears throat> uh, I was uh, a Dartmouth College football player. 
Uh, but it's hitting me that I stopped playing uh, seven years ago now, uh, which is kind of crazy. I'm getting old, and it sounds like I need to do something cool in life. So I'll go skydiving. I'll go bungee jumping for you all so that the next time I'm here, Doug can say something cool that happened in like the last five or so years. Um, don't quote me on that, though. Take that out of the sermon. Uh, thing. Well, uh, it's good to be back with you all, and and as we begin looking at our verses this morning, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, phenomenon called the Mandela Effect. Does anybody know, anybody heard of the Mandela Effect before? Okay, this is going to involve a little bit of uh, uh, audience participation in, in the beginning here. But let me just explain to you the Mandela Effect. The Mandela Effect, it occurs when many people incorrectly remember the same thing. And so essentially, it's it's a collective false memory. It's a group of people collectively misremembering things like an image, an event, or an, or an artifact of pop culture, like a, like a movie or a book or a television. And there are a lot of reasons why this kind of thing happens, why, why, why we collectively misremember things. It, it can be that we just have distorted memories, right? No one, no one here has a perfect memory. Uh, it can be that, that these facts, whatever we're misremembering, have been misrepresented on the internet or social media. Uh, or we just get ina- inaccurate uh, details about events or things of that, of that nature. And, and as I was looking up this Mandela effect and as I, I was uh, looking through some of the examples, I was, I, was, I was convinced of things that were not true. So I just want to see if that's also true of you this morning. I want to see if I'm not alone, okay? Uh, so, again, there's a little bit of audience participation. Does anybody here uh, like the, the peanut butter brand Jiffy? Anybody a Jiffy peanut butter brand person? You're not because it's it's never been called Jiffy. It's only Jiff. And I was convinced there was a Jiffy peanut butter. But since I had to go look it up since its beginning, it has always been known as Jiff. Or how about this? You guys know the cartoon series Looney Tunes, right? How do you spell the tunes in Looney Tunes? It is, is it T-O-O-N-S or is it T-U-N-E-S? Anybody T-U-N-E-S people? You guys would be correct. The T-O-O-N-S that I was super convinced of, never been a thing as well. <laughs> or how about this? If you've seen the, the old cartoon Snow White, what does is, what is the, the witch say to the, the mirror uh, on the wall to get it to say who's the, the fairest of them all? Can anybody sort of shout out the quote? What's that? Mirror, mirror on the wall. No, she actually says magic mirror on the wall. And this, this is the one I was most convinced of. And I went and looked it up on YouTube to see Snow White mirror on the wall quote. And, and it just pops up with a bunch of videos saying Mandela effect. You probably thought it was mirror, mirror on the wall. No, it's a magic mirror on the wall. Or how about Mr. Monopoly? What is Mr. Monopoly wearing in his eye as he's like running away with the money bag? He's not wearing anything. He doesn't have anything in his eye. And again, I was so convinced that it was the monocle. You know who has the monocle? It's his cousin on the planter's peanut uh, uh, box who's, who, who is just a regular peanut with a monocle in his eye. Right? It, this is the Mandela effect where it's not just me or you who misremembers these things, but it's, it's a community of people misremembering. And it happens with sort of these trivial things, but it also happens with more significant things as well. I mean, it's named the Mandela Effect because there was a group of people who were convinced that they remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s. They were convinced that there was a funeral service. They were convinced that they remembered a statement from his wife. They were convinced that they remembered a statement from from world leaders. And, And actually, Nelson Mandela got out of prison and he didn't die until 2013. But there was a whole group who was convinced that they remembered this significant event. This is, this is a real phenomena. And, it, and it's different from forgetting. 
it's, diff it's different from forgetting. Because forgetting, it doesn't take as much work to, to correct. D did you feel the certainty rise up inside of you as, as sort of the facts were challenged a little bit? Like I was. Like it wasn't enough for me to sort of look up and go, oh, it's just magic mirror on the wall. No, I had to go see for myself because I was convinced it was mirror mirror on the wall. No, it's different from forgetting. It's being absolutely certain about a past event or an image or historical event, but being completely wrong about it. And again, it's not just at the personal level, but it's at the communal level. It's a group of people misremembering to the point that fiction and fallacy becomes common knowledge. And this is the dynamic that Paul is wrestling with here in the book of Galatians and one that we still wrestle with here today. You see, see, Paul writes this letter to the Galatians because they have collectively misremembered what the gospel is. In essence, if you were to sit them down in a setting like this today and kind of go through that same exercise, if you were to ask them how many people think the essence of Christianity is about outward conformity to God's law, a majority of them would have raised their hand. Or if you were to ask, ask them if, if God was asking them to earn the salvation that he purchased for them on the cross, or if the favor of God that they experienced was because God had deemed them worthy enough to experience it because of their actions, a lot of people would have nodded their head, yes, that's, that's the gospel. Or if you would have asked them if other people needed to clean themselves up and look like good religious people before being able to truly experience relationship with God, there were a lot of people who would have been convinced that they were right about that, and that's what the Bible had always taught. But as Paul articulates in this, articulates the gospel in this letter, what he's trying to tell them is what they've accepted as common knowledge is actually fiction and fallacy. That, that's not what he preached to them at first, nor is that what the Bible has ever preached. They've misremembered the gospel as a community. And now, before we read this letter in judgment of, of the Galatians, I think this is often our relationship with the gospel as well. Christian or non-Christian, these questions we would say yes to, if not in word, at least in deed, right? I'll just tell myself, that just like the Galatians, I too am sometimes tempted to believe that the essence of Christianity is outward conformity to a certain set of rules. We too can be tempted to believe God is making us and others earn the salvation that he purchased on the cross. We can be tempted to withhold the grace of God to those who don't live up to the religious standards that we've set for them because we believe it's a reflection of God's disposition towards them. We all struggle with this Mandela effect, this collective misremembering when it comes to the gospel. That's why we need God's word. And so, so how do you open up someone's eyes to the fact that they're misremembering the truth, especially when they're convinced that they're right? Well, what Paul does in this letter, and, and especially in these verses, is he takes them back and tells them to take a second look. In these last couple chapters, Paul has been going back through the same scriptures and biblical figures that the Galatians and the false teachers had been using to make sense of their misremembering and telling them to look at those people and look at those scriptures again. And he's ending this section in chapter 4 with an illustration that revisits a familiar story from the life of Abraham. Now, if you don't know who Abraham is, just a little bit of background. You can find his story all the way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12. Through 24, he's, he's often uh, touted as the first patriarch of, of the faith. As God introduces himself to people throughout the Bible, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
God makes some very important promises to him that Paul has already talked about in chapter 3. And, and Abraham is really most known as this man of faith. He, he's often held up as an example of what it means to have faith, true faith, good faith, strong faith in God. But, but in this story that Paul takes us to, that, that he's breaking down in verses 21 through 31, in this story we're reminded that Abraham struggled with the faith that he was praised for. And, and Paul is using one of those stories of Abraham's struggle of faith to both challenge us and to encourage us this morning. And as we, as we comb through these verses, I think the challenge in, this ver- in these verses is that no matter how much we try, we can never produce the fruit of God's promises by substituting faith in him for our own effort. But, but the, I think the encouragement that we'll find is that God is so consistently faithful to his promises that it frees us from trying to force his hand and allows us to be people who simply live into the life that he promises. And so we're going to dive into this illustration. And we're going to look at three things. We're going, to, we're going to look at the similarity of the sons, the distinction of the mothers, and our place in the family. To help us sort of remember again what the gospel is, we're going to look at the similarity of the sons, the distinction of the mothers, and our place in the family. And if that doesn't make sense to you, we're, we're going to dive in and, and use some of this language that Paul uses here in his illustration. So let's look at the similarity of the sons. As Paul is still trying to walk the Galatians back through the facts of the gospel, he takes them back to the story of Abraham and the birth of his two sons. And again, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12 to, to hear the start of Abraham's story. And in Genesis 12, you would find that Abraham was given this great promise of descendants and land and a legacy that would bless all the nations if he would just obey God, move from his father's land, and go where God showed him. And and that's exactly what Abraham does. He takes his family, and he moves, and he moves to this land of Canaan. And over the course of time, as Abraham lived in Canaan, he had, as Paul correctly points out, two sons. He has Ishmael, and he has Isaac. Now, if you're familiar with, with the Bible story, maybe you grew up in church and, and maybe you know a little bit of the origin story of these, these two uh, sons, you probably have in your mind two boys or two men who look nothing alike as you think about Ishmael and as you think about Isaac. I know for me, I, I certainly did. They, they look like two completely contrasting different people. Maybe they have two different skin tones in your, in your mind. Maybe one is more hairy and one is smooth. Maybe one is more civilized and distinguished and the other more rugged. But if we go back and take a second look at the story of Abraham and the birth of these two boys, I think these two are more alike than they are different. I mean, let, let, let's, take, let's think about it. Both Isaac and Ishmael take half of their genetics from Abraham. And so they, they, they both resemble him in some way, right? Both of them are actually circumcised and called to walk faithfully before God. And so if you're familiar with God's uh, 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 telling Abraham to circumcise uh, him, himself and all the members of his household. He only has one son at that point, and it's actually Ishmael, and Ishmael gets circumcised. And so they both have the physical mark of belonging to God's people. Both of them are raised in Abraham's household. Though Ishmael gets kicked out eventually, he gets kicked out at the age of 14. And so a lot of his formative years and a lot of what he knew and a lot of his, his culture, his background, his understanding of the world came about as he lived in Abraham's household. 
Both of them also, funny enough, have near-death experiences at the hand of their father, <laughs> right? So Abraham takes Isaac up a mountain and uh, is about to sacrifice him because he believes because God uh, asked him to. But then at the last minute, God provides a ram in the bush. Uh, Ishmael gets kicked out of his father's household. And him and Hagar, his mother, are wandering in the desert and are near death before God provides them a well of water. And they be, they, they're able to live. So both. Uh, near-death experiences because of their father. Both experience God's blessing. Uh, uh, both come and bury Abraham in his old age. It, it seems to be that Ishmael actually doesn't go far from Isaac because one of Isaac's sons, Esau, goes and he marries one of Ishmael's daughters. And so if we were to go back and we were to look at Isaac and Ishmael and try to pick which one was the child of the free woman, and which was the child of the slave? Or as Paul puts it in verse 23, which one was the child of promise? And which one was the child of the flesh? We would have a hard time getting it right. These, these two boys, these two people are more similar than they are different. There's actually a good chance we would have picked Ishmael because he's the firstborn. He was, he was, he was older. The difference between them is not worlds apart. The difference between these two sons is, is a monocle versus no monocle. It's magic mirror on the wall versus mirror mirror on the wall. It's it's jiff versus jiffy. The, these differences are small enough to make it tell, uh, to make it hard to tell fact from fiction. And, and I think this is important for us to take some time and notice because Paul uses this story from Abraham's life partly to acknowledge the similarity between the two gospels that the Galatians have bounced between. Though the two are completely different at its core, and that's what Paul's going to get to, they look similar. And that's part of why it was easy for the Galatians to hear the gospel from Paul one day and then misremember it for the message that the Judaizers were teaching. I mean, let's parse apart living under the law versus by faith in Jesus. Both the law and Jesus Christ both come from God, right? Both of them condemn our sin. And both of them take God's holiness seriously. Both of them tell us to love God and to love one another. And both of them produce what looks like godliness and holiness on the outside. Paul himself being a, 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 a good test case for this. Paul was a Pharisee before he became a Christian, which means that he took God's law very seriously. And what that looked like on, an, on the outside was holiness was conformity to God's law. And when Paul becomes a Christian, he doesn't sort of jump off the wagon and, and, and begin to live life however he wanted to. No. On, on the outside, he, he still lived in and walked in the ways that God called him to. Both of them, the law and faith in Jesus Christ, can produce what looks like godliness and holiness on the outside. You see, those who came in preaching a different gospel, those who desired to live under the law, they were not turning from holiness to hedonism. They weren't abandoning their pursuit of a life lived with God. They were simply adjusting their motivation and assurance of how to experience the life God promised to give. And, and isn't that how we get tripped up in our own relationship with the gospel, in our relationship with God himself? I mean, if, if you're here this morning in this room at Christ Restoration Church, the chances are that you're not trying to decide how far from God you can get and how terrible a life that you want to live. I'm, I'm just assuming that's true of you this morning, if you, if you came here. Chances are that you're probably seeking to acknowledge God or at least understand who he is. 
The, the chances are you're seeking to live some version of a good and upright life. The, the chances are you're, you're a person who wants to be marked by care for other people. Maybe you want people to look at your life and, and deem you worthy of their favor. Or at least you want God to look at your life and, and deem, deem you worthy of his favor. And so as, as we as we do that, as we as we participate in, in, in looking for those things, as we look for a worldview or a community to help us in that pursuit, we pick what externally looks closest to the standards we or God wants us to achieve. And it's not just happening in us individually, but, but we're doing this constantly as a society. It, it affects our families and it dictates who we hang out with, right? It affects our school and dictates what kind of kids we want in our schools. It dictates our, our workplace and, 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 with, and dictates with who and how we want to do business. It even affects our churches and our efforts to be winsome to the community and before God, if, if we're honest. We're constantly tempted to choose what or who looks externally closest to the standards that we're aiming for. But the trouble with choosing according to external qualities alone is that we can choose worldviews and communities that look like God-ordained order on the outside, but that really are chaos and destruction on the inside. Choosing according to external qualities alone will have us absolutely convinced that we're headed down the right path and ignoring all the signs that we're, we're actually on the wrong one. See, just like Ishmael can look like the son of the promise because he looked like and came from the one who the promise was given to, so can living under the law look like faith in God because the law comes from God. The gospel of Jesus and the gospel of self can produce a life that looks similar on the outside, but no matter how much we want to equate them to one another, there is a world of difference between them. And so how do we tell that difference? How, how do we actually see and know what the true gospel is if they can look so close to one another externally? And why is it important to tell that difference? Let's, let's look at the contrast of the mothers. That's the similarity of the sons. Let's talk about the contrast of the mothers. So even though Paul starts us off talking about Abraham's sons, you'll notice that he spends most of the time in these verses not talking about the sons, but who they were born to. So just like we did with the sons, let's, let's go back and take another look at the women of this story that Paul is referencing. So we go back to Genesis, and, and God makes these promises to Abraham. He tells him to take his family and his household and move. He sets out and moves to the land of Canaan. And when he moves to the land of Canaan, he's married to a woman named Sarah. And as we're tracking along with the story, and, and we think about Abraham uh, getting these promises, moving with his wife, and one of the promises being that he will have many descendants, we're expecting Abraham and his wife Sarah to begin to have a bunch of children. But, but that's not exactly what happens. Actually, early on in the story, we get this detail that Abraham is 75 years old when he moves to Canaan. And Sarah is about 10 years younger than him, so they're both older. That's what we're going to call them this morning. Older. They're, they're older, right? 75 and 65, and these are the people who God makes a promise to, to give them descendants, a 75-year-old and a 65-year-old. From the beginning, God is making promises to people who we feel like are unlikely to see them, yet they still move according to their faith to this land that God shows them. And time keeps ticking for them, but time keeps ticking without them having a son. Actually, 10 years goes by, and in that 10 years, there's a, there's a famine that causes him to move around. There's a couple of times where Abraham actually 
gives his, tries to give his wife away to a couple different people to save his own life. There's a war that causes him to have to go and rescue his nephew Lot. And at the end of that 10 years, and after that, at the end of all these traumatic events, there's still no son. So now we've got an 85-year-old and a 75-year-old waiting on God to fulfill a promise to give them descendants. You can imagine the lapse of faith that they're having at that point. So Sarah, Abraham's wife, tells Abraham, listen to this. He says, she says that God has prevented me from having children. She says that God has prevented me from having a children. The same God who promised her a son, she makes up in her mind that that promise is too hard for him to keep to her. And so she says, take my servant Hagar and have a son with her. And that will count as God fulfilling his promise to me and to us. And so as a good, obedient husband, <laughs> Abraham sleeps with Hagar and she gets pregnant. In that, in that pregnancy of, of, of Hagar, it, it frustrates Sarah. It, it actually frustrates Sarah that her plan worked. At one moment, she's convinced that this is God's plan for her life, for her to have a son through Hagar. And months later, as she produces what externally looks like it's God-ordained, ends up bringing strife and chaos for everyone involved. And so she tries to kick Hagar out of her house. But, but Hagar eventually returns and she has Ishmael. And after Ishmael is born, the firstborn of Abraham, you get the sense for Abraham that this is good enough for him. Just like it was good enough for Sarah before they had Ishmael, after Ishmael comes, it, it feels like if you read the story of Abraham that it's good enough for him. Externally, it looks like he and his wife have fulfilled God's promise to them on God's behalf. In other words, maybe faith really is that God helps those who help themselves. Ishmael is good enough for Abraham. He looks enough like God's promise to fulfill, uh, to give him descendants. So much so that as God continues to repeat this promise both to Abraham and to Sarah, they go from believing God and it counted, being counted to him as righteousness to they both laughing at his plan. But God does fulfill his promise to Abraham at the ripe age of 100 years old. And as Sarah is 90 in, in Genesis, Genesis throws a lot of shade at people. It says, as, as the way of women had ceased to be with her. Well, I don't know why we had to add that detail, but it, 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 it's true. At the ripe age of 100 years old and Sarah is 90, God fulfills his promise to them. And they have a son together whose name is Isaac. And, and here lies the contrast that has implications thousands of years later for Paul and for us today. Because no matter how alike those two sons are that are born to Abraham, the circumstances of their birth could not have been any more different. And this is what Paul is calling us, calling our attention to here in these verses. Though they may look alike, one was born according to the flesh, meaning through mere human planning and effort, and one was born according to promise. One was a human achievement, and the other was a supernatural gift. One was born because his parents had given up on God, and the other was born because God had not given up on his parents. One was born due to a lapse in faith, and the other was born to strengthen and to fulfill faith. And though the sons may look like one another, it's not they who determine their own end, it's who they were born to. Again, if you go back and look at the story, God is faithful and he is kind 
to Hagar and Ishmael. He, he saves Hagar and Ishmael's life when they're cast out of Abraham's house a, a, a second time, and he blesses Ishmael, who becomes a mighty people. But God didn't make his promise to bless the nations to Abraham and to Hagar. He made that promise to Abraham and to Sarah. And so simply by being born to Sarah, it's to Isaac that the inheritance of Abraham's promise comes. See, Paul is reminding us in these verses that there's a world of difference between the two sons. Maybe not in their outward appearance, but definitely in the source of their life and who and where they come from. And that's not just true of Abraham's sons, it's true for the gospel as well. See, the point of the gospel is not just us acknowledging God with, with our words or our thoughts or our actions. It's about us acknowledging God and how we belong to him. If we seek to base our belonging just based on outward conformity, then we miss what's most important to God at the end of the day, which is a belonging based on faith in him to produce in us what he promised. I mean, look at verses 24 through 20 through 26, and look how different conformity to the law and faith in Jesus is for Paul in these verses. Earlier, they, they, they were similar. They looked just like the two sons, but, but look as he parses apart the difference. There's a difference in location, meaning that a life based merely on outward conformity to the law is centered on an earthly location. It's centered on Mount Arabia, Paul says, where God did come down and visit and do and say some good things. But a life based on faith in God is centered above us in the place where God dwells. Meaning, if we try to live a life according to, under the law, according to, according to God's standards that are good and that, that he did give, <clears throat> it's like us going back to Arabia and making sure the rules haven't been updated. We, we have to go back to a specific location at a specific time. Versus as we live faith in God, we get to dwell with God. Whereas Paul says in Galatians, in the heavenly places, communing with him daily wherever we are. There's a, there's a difference in location. There's a difference in time period. Right? He says that a life based on our ability to earn God's salvation is centered in a particular expression of Jerusalem. He says uh, in verse 25, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, a particular place in time, which again is not a bad place. But a life based on receiving the gift of God's salvation is centered in his promise before the world began to save us from our sin. It's his completion of his eternal plan of redemption that unites us with him. Either, either we're stuck waiting for, looking back to a particular place in time, or we remember that God, before we were formed in our mother's womb, knew us and saw us and chose us. And as we place our faith in him, he saves us. There's a difference in time periods. There's also a difference in results. And this is ultimately what Paul is after. See, a life based on our ability to merit God's favor, based on our actions, enslaves us to a life of fear as we're having to constantly assess our standing in the eyes of God. But a life based on God's consistent and never-ending grace frees us to stop looking at ourselves and gives us the capacity to love God and to love others simply because it is good and it is right. See, this is not primarily a story about sons. This is a story about mothers. Just like your life is not primarily about what you look like on the outside, but rather who you place your faith and your hope in, what you count as a source of your life. 
And this, I mean, if you're hearing this, I think this so violates every religious inclination that we have because that's not the common narrative of our culture, right? That's not what we remember what it means to be worthy enough for a relationship with God. As we hear from the culture and even as we, we just listen to the native religion of our hearts, what we think it means to be good enough for God is to be good. But the Bible says, and what Paul says from the very beginning is it's not to be again, outwardly conforming to some standard, but to be trusting in, to be placing our faith and our hope in the one, the only one who is good. And it's so consistent with what Scripture says from beginning to end. Do you remember the two thieves who were crucified on either side of Jesus as he is hanging from his cross? Again, another scenario where you're looking at two very similar people. Both of them are uh, criminals. Both of them are, are guilty. Both of them are being punished for, for, for their crimes, and they both have a conversation with Jesus about what he should do about it as they all three hang there on Calvary. But what does the scripture say? It says, one of the criminals who, ra- who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two thieves, both guilty, both not outwardly conforming to the standard that God has for their lives, but one gets to be with Jesus in paradise. Why? Because he places his faith, he places his hope in Jesus Christ. It's such a consistent narrative all throughout Scripture. The gospel message is not held together by what makes sense to our religious inclinations. It's held together by the person and work of Jesus Christ. If he is the source of your life, you are a child of freedom and promise. See, in the background maybe of this, this these Scriptures, this, these verses that Paul has for us, maybe we don't appreciate it, but there's a real dilemma here that Paul is raising as he parses apart these two uh, lives, a life of living under the law and, and the faith, and especially as he, as he presents it here in this illustration. Because what he does, again, go back and look at verse 25. He says, Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And as people, if you were a Jew reading this, reading these verses, you would have a lot of trouble with that statement because as the Jewish people trace back their lineage, they don't trace back their lineage through to Hagar. They trace back their lineage through uh, Sarah. I almost said Rebecca. <laughs> they trace back their lineage through Sarah. So as they're reading these scriptures, they're like, what do you mean? We, we are children of Abraham and, and we're the right children of Abraham, but you're comparing us to Hagar. I mean, are you saying we're not children of the promise? But, and as, as Paul is, again, saying these very same things to Jerusalem, saying we are children of promise, they would have thought about the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar and go, we don't have anything to do with this. We have no connection to any of these three people. So how are we also in the story? How do any of us get to identify with the children of freedom and promise in the ways that Paul is setting this up? Well, he already addresses that back, which is why we had verses 1 through 7 read for us. We identify with children of freedom and promise, not because we belong ethnically or in a story to one or the other women, but it's because we belong to 
Jesus. It's through his adoption. Go back and look at chapter four, verse starting in verse three. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but here's how we belong. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, by faith, by faith, we inherit God's promise. By faith, we become children of promise and children of freedom. Just like Isaac inherited his father's legacy and promises simply because of the one he was born to, so we inherit the legacy and promises of Jesus by faith in him as a source of our salvation. And if there's ever any doubt, because again, we can hear that one day and then walk out the next and be convinced that it's through our own effort that we belong to God. We are just like Abraham, who can be praised for our faith one day and struggle with it the next. And if there's ever any doubt, if we ever feel like Abraham and Sarah, and if we ever feel that God might not give us that promise of being children of freedom, all we need to do is look again, as Paul does with the Galatians, look again at the cross. The cross stands as the assurance for us for all time. It's sufficient. It's for all who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and its power is, is, is able to save. So if that's true. If that's how we belong to God. And that's our assurance. What does it look like to live this out? Let's talk, let's talk lastly about the freedom of the family. What the true gospel produces in us personally and as a community, Paul says, is, is freedom. And we're going to start to unpack this idea of freedom uh, in the sort of next few sermons. So we won't do that fully here. But, but the kind of freedom, what we'll say for now, is the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about is a freedom to follow and obey God without fear that causes us to try to manipulate or force God's hand. See, the gospel brings that God-ordained order that we try to display outwardly and places it at our core so that we live out of a sense of freedom. It's like the difference, if I can illustrate it this way, it's like the difference between an animal mascot and the real animal it represents, right? So we're here at Colby Sawyer College. I did some research. The Colby Sawyer is the Chargers, and its mascot is a horse. It's a charging horse. I thought it was a specific horse. It's just a blue chart of horse that's going forward. So that's Kobe Sawyer's mascot. So imagine that Doug came in in a horse costume. And then we actually brought a real horse in here. And I told you to pick which one is the real horse. Who is the true horse? Who is the, who is the free, who is the real horse in this room, right? The, the mascot, Doug, is going to be concerned with, with convincing us, right? And so he's going to try to do a lot of horse things. Maybe he gets on all fours. Maybe he starts neighing. As horses do, I don't know, maybe he tries to eat an apple through the costume, whatever horses do, right? He's gonna, but all his time is gonna be spent trying to convince us that he's a horse. Why? Because at the core of a mascot is a person trying to act the part because they know they're not the real thing and they're not even really sure of how to be one. 
but the horse, the, the real thing, the real animal is just going to walk around and do horse things because at its core, it's not trying to act the part. It's free just to be it, who it is. It's, it, it's a horse, right? It's not going to be concerned with convincing us. It's not going to be concerned with, with, with trying to do anything. It's just going to walk around free. Well, that's what, what the gospel does to us. It, it frees us not to try to convince us or, or, or others or God that, that we belong to him, but it just frees us to belong to him. We certainly still do conform to God's standards, but the difference becomes we love to obey God because it reflects his glory in our lives and to others. And, and so what does this look like? What does it look like to live out of this freedom and to, to have this freedom and live it out? Well, first, we, we let it permeate our hearts. And, and what I mean by that is in order to experience what Paul is saying here, to be children of the promise and to experience the freedom that comes with that, we first have to place our faith in Jesus and believe that what he's done for us is sufficient for our salvation. We cannot act our way into the kingdom of God or into God's family. We must come in by faith. We have to put our trust in God, and in the work that he accomplished on the cross. See, again, there's, a, there's this collective misremembering among our, among our culture that can even permeate our own hearts that says God only loves a certain kind of people or person. But the Bible reminds us he gave all who receive and believe in his name the right to be his children. And so first we let the freedom of God permeate our hearts by placing our faith in him. Second, we not just only let that freedom permeate our hearts, but we have to let it permeate our minds as well. We have to meditate on this consistent storyline of God's faithfulness. And, and part of that is going back to Scripture and making sure that we're reading Scripture, but we're also reading Scripture in the way that it, it's meant to be read. I mean, I'll, I'll confess, even before, up until we started preaching through the book of Galatians, I didn't read the story of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar this way. I always read it as, as sort of, oh, Abraham uh, messed up, and uh, man, we better not mess up like Abraham and Sarah did, uh, because that'll, that'll mean bad things for us, and it'll be bad consequences, uh, but God, is, God was faithful anyway, and then we, we keep going, right? I, I didn't read it through the lens of, 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 God's, of God's consistent faithfulness, and, and this not just being his plan for Abraham, but this being his plan for all of creation, for all time. And so we have to be letting this, this storyline of God's faithfulness in Scripture be, be uh, uh, meditating on it. God, we have to be reading in such a way that we remember that God had our freedom and forgiveness in mind from the beginning of the world, not our slavery and punishment. And lastly, we, we let that freedom permeate our hearts. We meditate it and let it permeate our, 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 in our minds. But lastly, we let that freedom permeate our actions. <laughs> what the gospel does is is it frees us and it frees us to obedience. And so we, there is a standard of God's holiness that we are to live into. But it's the difference is that we, again, live out of freedom. We don't police and persecute each other into God's holiness, but we invite each other to walk with each other according to the ways that God has made us. We invite one another to become children in the same way that we are. In, in verse 27, if you look back in Galatians chapter 4, Paul quotes this passage from Isaiah 54. It says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This comes from a particular point in Isaiah where there's been so many different uh, 
of prophecies of judgment in the book of Isaiah. And you get towards the end and it talks about this, this suffering servant who will come to save. And in Isaiah 54, Isaiah is talking about what that will look like. And, it, and it's an eternal covenant of peace. And, and what this quote, as Paul uses it, reminds us of is that these, this idea of becoming a, ch- a child of the promise, this, this idea of freedom is not extended to those who are almost there and you just need a little bit more push. Those who have it mostly together, and then you add Jesus, and then you, you, you get it all the way. But, but Paul is, is saying that this is extended to those who feel barren, who feel so, who feel so far from God, who, who as they, they think about and, 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 and meditate on the gospel and what it really takes and, what it, and, and this idea of faith and what that really takes and feel like, man, I'm so far from that. That's who this gospel is extended to. Again, because it's not in our own actions and it's not through our own effort that we come to God, but God comes to us and he offers us life and he offers us the fulfillment of his promises to us. And so if you hear this gospel, if you say, man, I misremember it all the time and I don't know how, how to continue down this, this, the, this track, if you feel barren and like you don't have anything to bring to God, this gospel message is for you. And I would invite you daily to place your faith in the one who gives us life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, that even when it's hard to tell the difference apart uh, between what it means to live for you and what it means to live for ourselves, Lord, uh, you give us wisdom, you give us insight, and you give us the power to live into the faith that you call us to. I thank you, Lord, that you have been so consistently good and kind to me and to us that you have had us in mind since Abraham and Hagar and Sarah were living and walking on this earth. Thank you, Lord, that your plan to justify us by faith is not just a, a plan B or an afterthought or, or, or simply a flippant idea, but it is the thing that you structured uh, this, this world around. Even the, the concept of time, you by placing the cross at its center. Lord, I pray that as we think about and meditate on these things, that it wouldn't just be an intellectual exercise, but that we would really come to you, Lord. That we would be free uh, from the fear that would cause us to try to manipulate you, but that we would walk in the freedom of being your children. It, it's such an, an awesome and amazing concept that as, we, as I think about it, I, I ask myself, how could that extend to me? And Lord, you tell us that it's not because of anything in us, Lord, but because you promised it and gave us the assurance of your promise in your son Jesus. And so today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to place whatever faith that we have in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.